Friends, uh, let us pray together. Awesome and amazing God. Lord, we thank you this day, this day that you have made. We thank you that we can wake to new mercies. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray that as we gather together, as we worship you through song, through prayer, through fellowship, through the study of your word, God, we pray that you would increase our faith. Oh, Lord, God, would you build in us a stronger and deeper faith. As we examine your word for your truth, Father God, would you cause us to know more completely your character, know completely more your will, and Lord, would you cause us to know more completely what you would have us know from your word. God, would we base all things that we know together and understand on your scripture alone. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your Bible now, would you bar our hearts and minds from distraction? Would you keep us focused entirely on the task at hand? Lord, would we glorify you in thought and in deed? We love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, it is an honor for me to be here with you today. And um, man, I feel huge in this pulpit, I got to be honest. Uh, I'm looking, there's like a step here and everything. I'm, I'm already a big guy. But I, I, have to, I have to tell you, today is a very special day for me, um, not just because it's a day that I get to preach the, the Word of God, and any day that I'm preaching the Word of God is a special day for me, but for several other reasons, one of them being uh, it, it is no vain praise that I, that I give when I say that your pastor, Pastor Keith, is one of my very dear favorite people on the planet. Uh, he is a dear man. I love him very, very much. You are blessed to have such a pastor. It is also uh, a, a special day for me because my parents have uh, traveled from Southern California, where I'm originally from, and they're here with us this morning. This will actually be the first time in my 12 years of ministry that my parents are going to hear me preach, and so that's excited. And it's also a special day for me because as of yet, my four-month-old daughter is not screaming in the middle of service. And so that's a good thing for me as well. As we turn our attention to God's word, I just want to thank you for allowing me to be here this morning. And I pray that God will grow us all together in his word. As we look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we see a lot that's happening here in Scripture. We see this charge that comes from the Apostle Paul. We see uh, a declaration of who Christ is. We see that we are given a command to preach the Word. And that's where I want to start this sermon today. These three words, preach the Word. We have to spend some time really defining what this looks like if we're going to understand anything that comes after this in Scripture and friends, a reoccurring theme that we're going to see today is that the Word of God holds power. The Word of God holds power. Now, this is something that Christians say all the time, is it not? And when a pastor stands in the pulpit and said, the Word of God has power, oftentimes, and thank you for not proving me wrong, at least someone will say, amen. This is true. Pastors and Christians alike are usually quick to remind folks that the Word of God is powerful. But i got to ask you, have you often stopped to think what exactly it is that that means? Now notice, 
there that I asked, have you often stopped to think about what this means? I didn't ask, have you ever thought about it? Because if you're a Christian, you probably have ever thought about it. But do you often think about this concept that the Word of God has power? The often part is important, friends, because when Christians make a claim that the Word of God has power, they should have something to back that claim up with. Unfortunately, in my experience, they often don't. How do I know this? How do I know that they often don't? Well, I ask. I ask people all the time. Uh, I know that, that not many people here know me. Some of you do. Some friends of ours are here. My parents are here. Pastor Keith is here, and you all know me. Uh, but I know a lot of you don't know me, and so you can ask them later if the statements I'm about to make my, about myself are, are true. I promise that they'll back them up. Because uh, I want to share something with you about me that everyone who knows me says is absolutely correct. I am known to be uncomfortably bold, direct, and passionately opinionated. And I say those things nicely about myself. <laughs> my dad says amen, my wife says amen. Told you it was true. So why is this important? Well, it's because one of my passionate opinions is that if someone is going to make a claim of fact, or, or in our culture we would call this personal truth statements, it's a claim of fact, right? If someone's going to make a claim of fact, I believe passionately that you should be able to back that up with something. It should come from somewhere. It can't just be from an opinion. So when I say that I know that many Christians don't have the answer to back up the claim when they say that the Word of God is powerful, I know this because I ask them. As a matter of fact, anytime someone says that phrase, that the Word of God is powerful, whether a new believer or a pastor or a saint of 80 years, I'll ask them, why? Why? Why is the Word of God powerful? And do you know what the number one answer is? The number one answer, whether they've been a saint for, for 80 years or whether they've been a saint for 10 minutes, the number one answer is, um, because it's the Word of God? And friends, that's a true statement. I mean, if we're going to take it simply, right, it is a true statement. We know that the Word of God is powerful because it's the Word of God. And so then I hit him with round two. Then why do we as Christians know that the Word of God is powerful? Very few people know the answer to this question. Do you? Don't answer right now. That would be awkward. It's okay if you don't, because I'm going to help you figure it out. But you know who gets this question right more than anyone else when I ask them? Who gets this question right, hands down, by a far margin, more than anyone else? Young children who attend Sunday school. They get this answer right more than anyone else. And it's not necessarily because they're a fount of knowledge. It's because young kids who attend Sunday school have a default answer for every church question. And what is it? Um, Jesus? Yes, yes, Jesus. Jesus is actually the answer here. The Sunday school answer is correct here. If you look with me, I know that our scripture is in 2 Timothy today, but we need to do some work first. So we're going to be in uh, John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5. And I don't know what version y'all collectively use, but I'll be reading this out of the ESV. And it says this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you'll skip just a little bit down with me to verse 14, it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is, and at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, so with all of that said, with all that scripture, uh, did, you catch, did you catch where I'm headed with this, friends? Right there in verse 1 of John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made was made. This means, friends, that all the way back in Genesis, when God spoke creation into existence, Christ was the person of God through which creation sprang forth. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and life was the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When God reached down into the dust of the ground and he formed man, it was through Christ that the spark of life came into Adam when God breathed into him. When God said, let there be light, it was the radiance of Christ that burst forth into the darkness and shone light into the dark places of all creation. In verse 14 of John 1, we see that that word, that same word that moved with power from the mouth of God to bring light and life to creation, from what was formless and shapeless and void, that same word became flesh. Our Lord, our Savior, our perfect sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh full of glory and full of grace and full of truth. And this, friends, this is why the word of God has power when you speak the word of God, you're speaking the power of Jesus Christ. So friends, the next time somebody asks you why it is that the word of God has power, why is it that the Christian can say unequivocally and beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word is powerful, the answer is Jesus Christ is the word of God. And this is why when we look at 2 Timothy, I know you guys thought I forgot that that's where we were actually are, but this is why when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we see in verse 1 in the 
first part of verse 2, we see this, this solemn charge. We see this solemn charge unlike we've seen anywhere else in any of Paul's writings. And it's a charge to do what? He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and that by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word is where Paul starts this section of scripture. When we see Paul give Timothy, and in so doing, God give us this charge to preach the word, the word and power and presence and the only son of God that burst forth in radiance and in magnificence to bring light and life to the universe is what we're called to preach. When we're called to preach the word, it's the magnificence of the glory of Jesus Christ that we are called to preach. And that's why God's word is powerful, because Christ is powerful. Where the word of God is not preached, when the word of God is not preached, Christ is absent from that preaching. So then we see in this next section of scripture, Paul says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What we see Paul telling us here is that we are to preach completely and consistently, Completely and consistently. We're told that we should always be ready to preach the word of God. The name and the life and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In season and out of season, Paul says. But what does this mean, in season and out of season? Well, this means a lot of things, honestly. But I'm only given 45 minutes to preach today. And in true Southern Baptist fashion, I plan on blowing that out of the water. (laughs) No, I want to be respectful of your time. And so as a result, we're just going to kind of look at two things that it looks like what it means to preach in season and out of season, to be ready in season and out of season. I want to kind of uh, make it uh, simple for you. When God, through the Apostle Paul, says to be ready in season and out of season, it's safe to understand it in these two ways. The first is preach when the harvest is bountiful and ripe for the picking. Preach. When the harvest is thin. For pastors or for evangelists or for anybody that preaches the word regularly, this means continue to preach the word when people are pouring into the churches, when the baptism numbers are way, way up, when the pews are filled, preach the word. And when everybody leaves because they're tired of the truth, when everybody is angry and would rather have their ears tickled by the word and their by the world rather. And there's three people in the pews and you're related to all three of them. Preach the word. (laughs) Preach the word in season and out of season. Whether the harvest is bountiful or the harvest is lean. And another way to understand this, for some of my sports fans in the room, and football season is coming, we expect that you're still here, by the way, on Sunday mornings. But another good way of understanding this is, is... in season and out of season, when you're at the top of your game and you're ready, or when it's the off season and you've been relaxing and resting and putting on a few pounds. Be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. Christians don't get an off season. We're to preach the word always. See, external circumstances cannot dictate 
our readiness to preach God's word. You have a pastor who knows this. It's one of the reasons I love him so much because I have been his friend as he and his family have gone through some very real trials. And even in the midst of trials, your pastor is ready to preach the word in season and out of season, to love you according to God's word in season and out of season, to speak the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in season and out of season. You have a good pastor. Do you follow his example? Are you ready in season and out of season as he is to preach Christ Jesus? And I want you to consider what's going on here with Paul's life. Because this isn't just a vain type of encouragement that he's giving to Timothy. Consider what's going on with him as he writes this. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he knew he was about to be martyred. And friends, martyred is just really a nice Christian way of saying brutally murdered. He knows that he's about to be brutally murdered. He's lonely. And for the first time in any of Paul's writings, even for just a brief moment, we read a, a, a sort of note of discouragement. It's almost like the wind has been taken out of Paul's sails a little bit, and he's reminding himself of the glory and of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know this because starting in verse 9, he begins to reflect on his life and the people that he's done ministry with, and he laments a little bit about some pain that he's dealing with. If you skip down just a little bit to verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. Remember when I said that he was lonely? Friends, I, I can't honestly tell you uh, that there have, haven't been times in my life where I have been lonely. I, I have. I have been lonely. And as a pastor, as a young pastor, as a young pastor in Silicon Valley, I've been lonely. And there have been times where I've reached out even to men like Keith, and maybe not in these words, but I've said, do your best to come to me soon. I, I've needed the support of brethren. And this is what Paul's saying. Do your best to come to me soon. And he says, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Paul's in rough shape here when he's writing this to Timothy. He's a little battered. He's a little bruised. He's been rode hard and put away wet. And he's still saying here to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. This is a man that knows trial and hardship, and he yet says, be ready. And then the next thing that we see he says, he says to reprove, rather, rebuke and exhort. So Paul not only tells us to always be ready to preach the word, he then reminds us three important aspects of preaching the word of God. He says to reprove, which is a way of saying to correct. See, uh, sometimes as Christians, we need to be corrected. Or at least I do. We need to be corrected sometimes. Now, now we don't necessarily mean to be off, right? It wasn't intentional. We don't intentionally stray in the things that we think or that we believe or that we say. But we've gotten off base somehow. And God gives instructions to correct one another to correct one another. And he says to correct one another for being ready in season and out of season, which follows the instruction to preach. 
Friends, when we read the Bible, particularly when we read Pauline texts, we see that it stacks on top of each other. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. It's a cascade of understanding. This thing first must be in place so this thing could be in place and do this while you're doing them. You see how that works? He says to be ready to preach the word whenever and wherever we must first know the word. That's being ready in season and out of season. So if we are to correct one another, it needs to be correction that is based on God's word, not even our passionate opinions. Ask me how I know that one. Then we're told to rebuke. Now, rebuke is a little bit harder. See, rebuke, it's just different than a correction. It's different than a gentle nudge when we're off base or when we're wandering or when we're discouraged. A rebuke is pointing out and a condemnation of sinfulness in the life of a believer. A rebuke is what happens as a result of fellow Christians' righteous intolerance of sinfulness in those who would call themselves fellow believers in Christ. If you are in the Lord and in the Word and the Spirit dwells within you, there's something that begins to grow in you that detests sinfulness. You loathe it. And so when you see it in those who would call themselves children of God, fellow heirs in the kingdom, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to point it out in love. And you seek first to correct. And if the correction isn't there, then you rebuke that sinfulness. We cannot tolerate sinfulness in one another because when we do, it becomes infectious. And if we'll tolerate sinfulness in our brother or our sister, you better believe that we'll tolerate sinfulness in ourselves, in our homes, in our heart. And so after this instruction to rebuke, Paul brings it back around to exhortation. Or another way of understanding exhortation is encouragement. What it means is to encourage one another from God's word. We are to build one another up. We're to support one another in our desperation, in our hurts, in our joys and celebrations, in our needs. And in our surplus, we are to support and encourage one another. Exhortation from God's word can serve to elevate one another away from despair, away from sinfulness. We are given to one another as brothers and sisters, as a great gift of grace, that we might encourage one another. We encourage one another to what, though, friends? To feel better? To have the joy, joy feelings down in our heart? No, friends, we encourage one another unto righteousness, the righteousness of a biblical standard. And so, friends, we know that this is true, not just because Paul writes it here, but also he says something very similar to the Thessalonians. When he's, when he's discussing the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is the reason why he tells them to encourage one another and to build each other up. It's this concept of biblical exhortation, propping one another up with God's word. And I know I'm moving through this quickly, but then we see another direction. As we look in this section of Scripture, we've seen so far this, this charge 
to preach the word in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And then we see something else, with complete patience and teaching. So not only are we told to preach the word, not only are we told in season and out of season, not only are we told to reprove and rebuke and, and exhort, but we're told to preach patiently and theologically. Paul says here that we need to preach with complete patience and teaching. Now, in hearing this section of Scripture, when it's taught by some other men, men who I greatly respect and admire, I I tend to notice a a, a habit or a tendency that these men have of separating these two things. Separating preach patiently and preach theologically. However, for me, I don't separate those two things, or at least I don't anymore. So do you remember when I told you that I've been described as uh, being uncomfortably bold and uncomfortably direct and passionately opinionated? That hasn't always been a good thing. My parents will tell you about that too. You see, for a while, particularly when I first became a pastor, I separated the ideas of preaching patiently and preaching theologically. And this led me to to an understanding and a practice that basically kind of went something like this. I'll preach patiently through the text, taking small chunks in context and, and preaching them in an expository manner that will then make the text clear and practical to those who hear it. Anybody heard any flaws yet? Me neither. It's the next part that gets ugly. That philosophy kind of went on like this. And I'll also preach theologically sound sermons that shove truth down people's throats whether or not they're ready to receive that truth. Friends, I didn't realize that this was my outlook. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't set every Sunday or every Wednesday evening or every Sunday evening. I didn't set forth to get in the pulpit and hammer people. I didn't realize it was the disposition of my heart, but I was so eager to expose the full measure of God's word to a congregation that had honestly been surviving on a trickle for so long that instead of being patient, I cranked up the volume. I cranked up the pressure and I let everybody have a drink from a fire hose. I was unrelenting in how I hammered folks with the word. I was theological, yes. I absolutely was theological, but I was not patient. It's only by the grace of God that those people, those lovely saints, the members of my church didn't toss me out on my backside. And one of the means of grace that God used to help temper my enthusiasm, we'll call it that, one of the means of grace that God used was my dear friend, Pastor Keith. Your pastor loves you very much. And even without knowing me very well, he loved me very much. He was gentle and he was kind, yet he was very firm in a way that only he can seem to balance in reminding me that the whole reason that I agreed to be a pastor in the first place was because I love the Lord and I love his people. If I wanted them to grow in theological understanding, if I wanted them to grow to love God's word in its full counsel as much as I do, I would have to lead them there by preaching with complete patience 
and teaching. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, God, through the Apostle Paul, says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We must remember that as true believers, we find unity in God's word. And we must strive to maintain that unity in patience and love. Now, with all of that established, we're doing good. With all of that established, with this groundwork that we've just laid out, we're given five things that we can do when our faith is thin. See, up until this point, we have seen that Paul gives us these, these strong exhortations to preach God's word, to preach the full counsel of God's word, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort to do all of these things with complete patience. And then he tells us why. And tell me if this sounds familiar to any of you. He says why. When he says, there a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, this was just as true for Timothy at the church of Ephesus as it is for us today. There's a reason that there are so few sound biblical churches that are packed to the gills every Sunday. There's a reason why we've got elbow room, friends. People will gather to themselves, teachers, that will tell them the things that they want to hear, that will encourage their depravity. Friends, people will gather themselves to themselves people who will lie to their face as long as it makes them feel good about themselves. And they'll joyfully clap and applaud and raise their hands and stand in praise of these lies all the way to hell. But we see in this last section of 2 Timothy Verses one, uh, one, uh, 4, verses 1 through 5. We see that everything that we've just looked at makes the unpacking of this last section a, a slam dunk. So let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like your faith was failing? Have you ever felt thin in your faith? Am I, am I alone in that? Because I'll tell you right now, standing before you, I've felt that way. I've felt extremely thin in my faith in my lifetime. Have you ever felt the way that Jesus refers to this feeling in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20? Have you ever felt like a bruised reed or the burning ember of a wick? This is what Jesus, reminiscing Isaiah, calls believers who are tender in their faith. He calls us bruised reeds or smoldering embers. And I don't mean smoldering in the sense that we're flaming hot and ready to burst into flames. I mean smoldering in the sense 
that we're cooling off. We're ready to go out. Have you ever felt like your faith was a weak little ember? That it was in peril of just being snuffed out altogether? Now, there are likely those uh, people, maybe even some here now, that, that would say, no, my faith has never been weak. I have always been steadfast and strong. I'm not that guy. I've always been super solid. I've always been firm. I've never had a moment of doubt. Friends, anybody that would say that, if you bring your weakness to them or if you ask them for an honest opinion, anybody that would say that to you, well, friends, they're, they're, they're either lying or they're trying to sell you something. Or, even worse, in their pride and their arrogance, they don't realize that the thing that they have faith in is them, not Jesus. Now, I'm going to say something here that might make people uncomfortable. It might not. The, the, the weird thing about being a guest preacher is I, I don't know the people. But I want to say this in love. And sometimes, friends, the truth spoken in love can sting a little. If your faith has never been tested, friends, if your faith has never been tried, if you've never had a moment of doubt where you felt like your faith just wasn't strong enough to see you through, then friends, with love, your faith probably isn't in Jesus. Because the Bible tells us, Christ himself tells us that you will know hard times and that your faith will be tested. In John chapter 16, verse 33, and I just picked one single verse, not because there aren't many, but because I do have a time limit and I do want to respect your time. John chapter 16, verse 33 says so clearly, and I want you to hear this. This is Jesus himself. These are his words when he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, different translations kind of translate this a little different way, so maybe you're more familiar where it says, you know, in this world you have trouble or in this world you have strife. Regardless uh, of the, the, the translation, it's all saying the same thing. That in this world, Jesus is saying, in this world you will know troubles, you will know tri tribulations, you will know trials, you will know hardship. You will have trouble, but take heart, Christ says, for he has overcome the world. So this is why I say, not just to be an edgy guy that says something that stings, this is why I say that if your faith has never been tested, it might not be Christ that you believe in. Because when Christ makes a promise, friends, it happens. And Christ tells us here, you will know hardship. You will be tested. So ask yourself truly, what is it that you have faith in? Because if Jesus Christ promises you that the world will hate you, doubt you, dismiss you, and bring you hardship, and you haven't yet known those things, you might not know him the way you think you do. And remember, remember where I told you Paul is writing this from. He's lonely. He's acutely aware of the fact that his death is imminent. And he's writing what in many ways could be viewed as his farewell address to Timothy, whom he describes as his spiritual son. 
In in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is how Paul describes Timothy. So he's writing what could be conceived as a goodbye letter to his son as he faces his imminent death. And the pastor that's receiving this, by the way, Timothy, is a young pastor in an extremely decadent and pagan city, Ephesus. And and friends, let me tell you, I know what it's like to be a young pastor in an extremely decadent and sinful pagan place. It's hard. The city itself, just just the occupants of the city made Timothy's ministry difficult, not to mention the persecution the church at this time had started to fall under from the state, from Rome. And we're given indication that very mem- members of, of the very church at Ephesus, brothers and sisters within the body also, were making Timothy's life very difficult. These two men that we see in this scripture, they know what it means to have a testing of their faith. And yet, Paul still says all these things that he says. Okay, so as we continue on in in Timothy 4, with all that we've seen in place, verse 5, we get to and it says this. I told you that I'd give you a list of things to do when your faith is thin. And I know that there are probably some checklisters in the room. Any checklisters here? You like your checklists? We don't get to see them all the time in the Bible, but when we do, let's take a note. (laughs) Because here we're actually given a checklist of things that we can do when we're in this period of life. Verse 5 says, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We're given four very clear directives on what to do when our faith feels thin. It says, always be sober-minded. Now, I know I'm in a Southern Baptist church. I'm a Southern Baptist. I love being in a Southern uh, Southern Baptist church and being a Southern Baptist pastor. But as a result, I have to make sure we're defining sober correctly. Okay, friends? (laughs) What does it mean to be sober-minded? Always sober-minded. We have to address the language because what's happening here, if we're not careful, is too many people all throughout history and all throughout the Christian church and particularly throughout SBC churches read that word sober and we think, okay, it means not to be drunk. On to the next thing. Right? Don't drink, we got that one down, on to the next thing. And and that's really not what's saying here. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's okay to be intoxicated, because it's not. (laughs) It's never okay to be intoxicated, or or as the Bible says, to lay beside much wine. That's, That's not what we're talking about here. The Bible tells us not to be drunk, but here it's not talking about intoxication. It's telling us to be sober-minded, and specifically what Paul is saying here, uh, it's kind of like a colloquialism from the time, and, and would it, be, it would be a, a lot more, how, how could we bring it into kind of our vernacular, would be kind of like, don't freak out, right? Don't lose your cool. Keep a cool head, is what Paul is telling us here. When Paul is reminding us to always be sober-minded, he's telling us to keep a cool head, to always have a calm mind about us. See, when life gets tough, and I'm hoping that we've established already that for the Christian life will get tough. We can lose our minds when things get hard, can't we? We lose our cool. We become frantic. We become disenfranchised. We start pulling back from the things that root us and ground us. We become lost and wandering. And what Paul's telling us is we have to keep our cool in the face of opposition, either under formal opposition like Paul was, was under, 
or, or even under informal opposition, like the trials of life, like having too much month and not enough paycheck, like having kids that are driving you batty, like having a marriage that's stressed thin, like having work situations that are coming down on you. We have to keep a cool head. Also, when we meet opposition, either from, from those who would oppose Christ or, 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 or those who would, who would oppose our worldview or those who would uh, just oppose us in life, Friends, we have to remember that we must stay focused on the gospel. Remember that all of this was rooted in what directive? Preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. Be ready. The next directive we see in this section of scripture, we see sober-minded, and then we also see endure suffering. Endure suffering. And what does that mean to endure suffering? Well, I don't have to ask for a show of hands to know that people in this room have suffered. From the oldest to the youngest, we've all suffered in some way. So what do you do when you face hardship? Do you quit when things get tough, friends? Far too many people do, even far too many people that call themselves Christians. But Paul tells us that for the true believer, that's not an option. We must endure suffering, endure hardship. Friends, what Paul is calling us to do here is stand firm, stand fast, endure suffering. Friends, I've, I've suffered hardship in my life. I've had cancer. I had cancer at a young age. I come from a, a, a broken household, and I know that's weird with my parents sitting in the back uh, uh, row there, but, but we're a blended family. My dad, the man who I call dad, is my stepdad. He showed me what it is to be adopted into a Christian family. He helped frame my understanding of what it means to be adopted in Christ. But when I was in a broken family, my biological father was not an easy man to be with, quite abusive and rough. A handful of years ago, I, I broke my neck and my back and ripped apart my shoulder in a workplace injury. We've gone years as a family, literally years, not figuratively, literally years without an income because of that injury and a workman's comp case that followed out from it. We went three years when my neck and my back were broken that I was not legally allowed to work anywhere else apart from the few hours a week that I was working already at the church because I had that job before I was injured. We went three years without a solid income. Three years not knowing where our rent was coming from, how the lights were going to stay on, whether the gas was going to be turned off. And, and that was hard. And in the midst of all that, my youngest son, Caleb, he was born. It was hard. And I know that most of you have probably seen worse, but it's tough. So what did we do? We endured suffering. We pursued the Lord and we pursued ministry anyway. We took this time as a blessing. I couldn't be at work because I was broken. The only thing I could do is work at the church, so work at the church I did. And I buried myself in understanding better theology because I was a mess. I buried myself in having a better understanding of what it meant to be a pastor, to be a minister of the word, to be a brother in Christ, to be a man of biblical fortitude. This is what I buried myself in understanding. We stood fast as a family. Friends, you can't give up. 
And I can tell you, friends, that there was never a single time in that three and a half years that God let us go without. There was never a single time that God let us go without. There were times that we were close. I can't tell you how many three-day payer quits we were served on, our, on, our, on a place where we were renting. And it was shameful. But every single time, God delivered, and our rent was paid. Every single time, God delivered, and the lights stayed on. Every single time, God delivered, and my wife and my children had food. Every single time. Every single time. Stand fast. Endure suffering. Christ loves you. Preach the word. The next thing that we see as we look into this section of scripture, I keep looking back there for a clock that's not there. The next thing that we see is do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist, it says. After saying, be always sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. I want you to see, friends, that evangelism is something that every single Christian is called to do. Full stop. Every single Christian is called to do evangelism. We're going to look at that a little bit more. But I want you to see how serious Paul takes this. Because remember, this is Paul. He's the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. I want you to see that this isn't just something that Paul or other church leaders say that we can get you fired up, that we can get you motivated to get out with us to market night or whatever thing that we're doing. It's not looking for volunteers. Friends, this is a command from God's word that all believers, every Christian, needs to be doing the work of an evangelist. If you'll turn, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'm going to share with you an awesome picture that we see of evangelism. And as you're getting there, I kind of want to paint a little bit of a picture for you in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I want to give you a background. Paul, the Apostle Paul at this point in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, he's in Athens at this point. He's waiting for some people to come. He's meeting them there. He's waiting for some people to come so he can continue on and go do ministry somewhere else. And it says this, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and of the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ear. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now to the Athenians and the, and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
and he made from one man every nation of all mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods for the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offering, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this, uh, uh, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice what it says. Now when they heard of the resurrection for the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed who were Dionysius and uh, Aeropagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Now, friends, I want you to see why this is so amazing. It's because Paul was not there to accomplish this task, was he? That's not why he thought he went there. Now, we know the story. We know that God had him there by divine providence. But that's not what Paul thought he was there to accomplish. Paul was there to meet up with some people and then, then plant and serve another church. You notice there isn't a letter to the church at Athens here in the Bible, is there? No. But I want you to see what happened. Paul understood that the work of an evangelist for the Christian is never done. There's no off-season that every Christian is called to evangelism. And so he met people where they were in context of where they lived and what they were doing. And he told them, I understand that you're religious and you think through things. You're so very religious that it, just in case you missed a God, you've got a statue over here that says, just in case we missed one. I understand that you're this, this religious. And let me tell you, this one that you missed is actually the only one. This one that you missed is the true God, the true one that loves you so much that even though he spoke creation into existence, even though he is Lord over all things, even though he is in essence and in being the very thing that mankind came from and is sustained by and through, this God is so great and so powerful that he sent a man to serve you and bring salvation and then to prove his dominion over life and death and all things, he raised that man from death after people murdered him. And it says that some people mocked him. And other people say, I want to hear a little bit more about this. And some people just got up and said, yes, that thing, I'm going. We see something here, friends, that is so powerful. See, as a Christian... We should have deep in us a longing, a deep desire wrought by the Holy Spirit in our being to see people know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It should be a desire of every Christian that when you see someone who is lost and, and bound for wrath, that, that that person would be saved and know the grace of Jesus. This should be something that wells up inside of you. It should be something that derives you. It compels you to do something 
that no person might know the wrath of God in hell. It should drive you. This old saying that faith and religion is a personal thing, it's nonsense. This old saying that evangelism is gifted to some and not to others, that's true. There are people who are given the gift of evangelist, but all Christians are given the command to evangelize. All of them. And, and this is why, this is the crux of it here, friends, is because I told you these were four things to do when your faith feels thin. Friends, I promise you, I promise you with every fiber of my being that if you feel thin in your faith, if you are feeling weak because of the turmoil and because of the trial, if you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be encouraged it is impossible, impossible for true Christians to speak the glory and the majesty of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be energized. It is impossible for us to stand in the face of someone who is bound for wrath and give them the hope and the truth of the fact that God made us, that he made us and he loves us even though we're deserving of no love, that man fell from grace by sinning against in rebellion to the awesome God of the universe. And even though we deserve nothing from this God, still he provided a way that we could be restored to fellowship with him. And that way was through Christ Jesus. It's impossible for the Christian to say this and not feel energized. It is impossible for us to look at someone and let them know you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. You are bound for wrath, and friends, let me tell you, there is hope in this man, Jesus. This God that came, he lived a perfect and sinless life for 33 years. And then he, having done nothing wrong, marched dutifully to his death where he was brutally murdered, that his blood would be spilled, that our sins might be once and for all forgiven by his grand and total sacrifice. That more than just death on a cross, he was then put in a tomb where he lay for three days. And then to show his dominion over death and life and all things, he raised up out of that tomb in the same body in which he was laid in it and he walked out. It's impossible to tell somebody this and not feel energized in the Lord. It's impossible then to say to them that Christ went to his friends and his dearest, his kindred. He spent time with them. He ate with them. He laughed with them and joked with them. And then he ascended into the clouds where he sits now at the right hand of God making intercessions for his people. And you can be one of his people if you repent of your sinfulness. If you believe in all that the gospel has to command, if you obey all that the Bible says, friends, you cannot say these words to somebody and not be lifted up in your spirit. You cannot help but be energized when you speak the power of the word of God, Jesus Christ. And then we see finally, we see finally in this section of scripture where we're told, Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry, the Bible tells us. Complete your purpose. Complete your purpose. I want you to see that every single one of us has a ministry. We all have a purpose. And you might be sitting here saying, well, I don't know what that is, Pastor Justin. 
I don't know what that is, Pastor Keith. I don't feel called to ministry. Poppycock. Garbage. You were called to ministry the day you were called out of wrath and out of death and into life. You were called to ministry the day that grace upon grace abounded out from God and into you. You were called to ministry the day that you were given the gift of faith. You were called to ministry. And so, friends, when you feel weak in your faith, complete your purpose. Do your job. Speak boldly and unapologetically the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm on the words of God's holy scripture. Pray fervently that God would increase your faith and that grace that once abounded in you would abound again, that it might overflow and that the people around you might see that grace and come to believe and repent and obey. Friends, do your job. Fulfill your ministry. And I promise you, I promise you, your faith will not feel thin for long. Friends, if you're here today and all of this is confusing to you, I certainly want to speak with you, and I know that Pastor Keith does as well. If you want to know what it means to believe, to repent, to obey, if you want to know what it means to preach the word in season and out of season, if you want to know what it means to endure suffering, if you want to know what it means in Christ to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill your ministry, then friends, I know that there are people in this room that would love to help you understand that more deeply. And with that, friends, I would just like to close us in a word of prayer. Awesome and amazing God, Lord, I thank you so much for the salvation that was purchased for your people through Christ Jesus. I thank you for his sacrifice. I thank you for his example. And Lord, I thank you that in your word, you give us ceaselessly more and more ways that we could better understand your character and our relationship to you. And I pray, Lord, that for every single person here that you would abound with much grace in us. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to always be sober-minded, Lord, that in the hard times you would cause us to stand fast and endure suffering. Lord, I pray that you would put on our hearts and minds the fact that every single one of us is called to do the work of an evangelist. Lord, would you help us fulfill our ministry well? God, would we run the race in a manner that pleases you? Would each and every one of us, when we stand before the throne, hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And for those, Lord, who are here that may not know your grace and your goodness, I pray in this moment that you, by the power of your spirit, would stir their affection for Christ Jesus in their heart, that you would give them a heart of flesh, Father God, that you would soften their stiff neck, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and that they would believe and repent and obey, that they would know salvation through you and become a fellow heir in the kingdom of heaven. To your glory, to your praise, forever and ever. Hallelujah and amen.